it was, it was something like that. The point being um, that our church needs to be able to represent our constituency. And that's the fill in the blank. Our constituency must be reflected in our leadership. Our constituency must be reflected. That's the point I'm driving at. It's, it's yes and no, it's affirmative action. Yes, in the sense that we need to be able to represent. We need to have people up on this rug. We don't have a platform, but on this rug that look like you. And in order for people, in order for this church to be able to effectively reach people that look like you, we, we, need, we need that. Um, but at the same time, it's not just to fill a quota. It's not just to make us a big kind of, you know, big multi-ethnic family and everybody's happy. Because in some ways, um, affirmative action, it, 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 it misses some of the, the important cultural dynamics that need to take place. Um, so... On the one hand, um, we, want to, we, want to, we want to diversify our leadership, but at the other hand, we're not just doing that to fill a quota. So, and I won't talk much more about that, but I will say it's a lot easier said. It's a lot easier said than done. It's a lot easier said than done because it's not like tomorrow, like all of a sudden, you know, starting coming out from a Korean church and then we want to bring in all these diverse perspectives. You know, it's, it's a lot easier said than done. Um, even with our leadership team right now, we're all Korean. You know, our staff is, is I'm not going to do percentages now, but largely Korean. So all to say, um, but a push needs to be made in the future, in time. When the time comes, we need to um, assertively With our, with our staff, with our leaders. How come we're not bringing on more Korean males? Something to, to definitely be aware of. Um, when I was in seminary, there was a Baptist church in the city in Vancouver, Canada, and the, one of the, the pastor of that Baptist church talks about how when he, when he, was, when he came to the first Baptist church of Vancouver, it was a... It was a all Caucasian um, staff, but if you've ever seen Vancouver, it's incredibly diverse, very high population of Chinese Canadians, and they made a strong push, and for one of the key vital positions, they brought on a Chinese Canadian, and subsequently, they actually saw the church exponentially grow in that population, um, and they were able to really... Um, empathize, more than empathize, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this last thing, it's about trust. It's about trust. It's about this thing where can, I, can we trust the, the direction of our church to people that are coming from a different place? Can we trust the agenda to be run by diverse perspectives? So it's about trust. Hold that thought because I think that's really one of the most important themes for today. Um, trust. So let's continue. So we're talking about a diverse leadership. You start the church off with this diverse um, group of leaders. And then in verse 2, look at verse 2. We'll read verse 2 and 3. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So you've got this five-person leadership team, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit tells them to send two of them away. 
the author of the book of Acts has no problem talking about conflict and conflict resolution and conflict resolution. There are places in the book of Acts where there's conflict, where there's people parting ways, where churches have different directions. They go do, 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 do different things. This is not one of those cases. I don't think this is one of those cases. Um, I think clearly this is where they had a chance to build the New York Yankees, if you know what I mean. They had a stacked team. But instead of hoarding and keeping this, this perfect team, they, on good terms, when momentum was high, willingly released two of their five to go out to this cutting-edge work. So instead of hoarding, instead of keeping, instead of controlling, what they did was release. And that's the second fill-in-the-blank. A truly powerful church. See, here's the thing. You thought today, you know, we're using the word powerful, how to be truly powerful, powerful church. That we're going to come in and going to bring your A game, get all of our go-getters, going to come and, you know, give a rousing sermon about being really strong. Actually, you see that this is different. How to be truly powerful is not about controlling. A truly powerful church is a releasing so you see what I'm saying? How to be truly powerful is not about exerting yourself or puffing your chest up. It's about letting things go. That's not just church talk, friends. That's life talk, too. You want to know a truly powerful person? This is somebody that has open hands, that's able to let things go. You want to see a person that's not powerful? This is somebody that's controlling, nitpicking, micromanaging, has their hands in every aspect of life. It's really interesting because it says at the end of verse 3, they sent them away. And I did a study on this word, sent them away. That all throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament, sent comes up a lot. But when it comes up, many times there's two words that are used there in the, in the original Greek, either apostello or pempo. Apostello or pempo both talk about sending somebody on a mission. I pempo you means I dispatch you like a general would dispatch a soldier. But that's not the word that's used here. Actually, the word that's used here is another word, which is interesting. It's not so much sent them or dispatched them. The word more so has a sense here of letting them go, releasing them, giving them leave, setting them free. So the word sent, I really think it has this connotation of setting them free setting them free. Instead of hoarding the perfect leadership team, instead of hoarding and having everything perfect and having everything down airtight, this truly powerful church set free its people. That, I think, is the difference between a controlling church and a releasing church. This church actually would go on to just grow more and more influential. You think that letting go of two of their five... Um, now, don't misunderstand. I don't... I, I don't <laughs> You know, I, I wouldn't want to let go any of you. So that's not the point. The point, I think, is the spirit that says, I can hold on to things loosely. It's the spirit that says, not everything is down, um, deep down with my hands grasped like this. The truly powerful church is a releasing church. And by releasing and setting people free, not controlling, not controlling, um, the church would only grow in influence. I know some of you here, I know for a fact, some of you here 
come from very controlling environments. Maybe controlling households, even. Maybe a controlling household, but specifically a controlling church. And there's something damaging about a very controlling atmosphere. There's something very damaging about it. When an atmosphere is very controlling, when all of the behavior is controlled, where all of the people on board are yes men and women. Um, in fact, there was a church on the West Coast that just collapsed, not because of any big, uh, you know, adultery or money problem, but because it was controlling. There was a lot of control, and therefore an entire huge operation just basically shut down. So control is, is, um, it is a dangerous thing, and um, having, having this, this spirit of releasing, I think, is, is the essence. I think what we see in Antioch modeled is this releasing spirit. It's this thing where they're giving away permission and protection and, um, and trust. Once again, that word trust. So, a powerful church. A powerful church is a church that is not, you know, just controlling. It's a powerful church is one that, that is releasing. Um, and, um, and trust is an important word. So how about powerful leaders? We'll move on to the second heading. Powerful leaders in the church. Is a powerful leader somebody that says this is the way it has to be? Is a powerful leader somebody that asserts himself? I, I was with a couple of friends on Saturday morning, um, not from this church, um, and I had, a, I, had this, I had this aha moment personally. And it made me, on the one hand, not feel good, but on the other hand, know that there was some truth to it. And I told a couple of these guys, you know, I think my leadership style, I think my operational style, I, I just don't think I'm an alpha male type. I don't think I'm an alpha male type where I, ha I, I, I do... If I ever try to exert myself as an alpha male, I think it, it, it doesn't work. I think I'm more of the creative, kind of the visionary. I'd rather kind of steer from the back with a small rudder rather from the front with a big oar, you know. Um, sometimes leadership is a lot more about um, that creative vision and knowing how to, you know, just with slight moves, just steer a ship. Because I, I just don't relate to being a powerful leader. I don't relate to being an alpha male. Some of you are alpha males, maybe even alpha female. I'm, I, anyway, that's just me. I'm sorry to make this just about me. But. So what does it mean to be a powerful leader? Because lots of times we think powerful leader, we think the alpha males. We think the alpha males. But I beg to differ. The biblical definition of a powerful leader I don't think is, an, is necessarily the alpha male. There's more to it than that. There's a lot more to it than that. So let's look at chapter, nine, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 9 to 12. And it's interesting because all this time, of the five, the last one mentioned is Saul. You've got Barnabas. Help me out here. Barnabas, um, Niger, Lucius, Menaean, and, um, oh, what was, his, what was his name again? The last guy? Oh, yeah, Saul. So it's almost like an afterthought. And Saul. But something interesting happens that Saul, who kind of sits in the back and has been underground for 10 years. We don't know exactly what happened in those 10 years where Saul kind of just hung out underground. All we know is that he was formed. 
He became a leader. And for that matter, I think a lot of his training happened in this place called Antioch, in this city, Antioch. And it's really interesting. I think a perfect analogy, the perfect analogy for this, um, I use this movie all the time. Forgive me, I probably overuse it, but this time it really is a perfect connection. There's, there's The Mission. It's, it's an older movie called The Mission, starring Robert De Niro, Jeremy Irons. Lee, a young Liam Neeson is in it as well. And on this rainy Sunday afternoon, go home, you know, divvy up the mission, and it's, it, it will be worth your time. But the story is about a slave trader, played by Robert De Niro, who lives his life trading South American slaves, hunting them down, killing them, trading them as currency, but somewhere in the, somewhere in the story becomes radically converted. To, he becomes a Christian, and, and it's, it's incredibly powerful. Um, it's so powerful. You guys watch it today. And, and, and he becomes converted um, through the help of the very people he enslaved, such that he turns around and the one who would kill the slaves, who would, who would, who would persecute the slaves, actually becomes their strongest champion. He would champion and defend them. That's exactly what happens to Saul. Saul, who started off as a Jew among Jews that said, oh, you're not Jewish five feet away from me. Don't contaminate my airspace. You're not like me. I can't allow, you know, somebody that would, that, 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 that would be the last person would actually become the apostle to the Gentiles. He would become the champion to the Gentiles. So what we're talking about here is some deep formings that happen in Antioch. This guy, Saul, would become um, a powerful leader. So look at verse 9. And what happens here is they have an encounter with um, a Jewish magician and also um, a man named Sergius Paulus, um, an influential leader. So let's read together um, in a loud voice, clear voice. Chapter 13, verse 9 to 12, if we can read that now. Ready? But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul, the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This is the first mention of the word or the name Paul. Verse 9, Saul becomes Paul. Filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, fixing his gaze on Elymas the magician, saying these powerful words. It's like this guy was underground for 10 years. He comes above ground, and you see him, and you're sweating, and you're like, oh, my gosh. His hair is flying up like this. The little green square on your eye, the numbers are flashing, and you see he's at super scion level 10 and growing. <laughs> And only increasingly powerful. What happened? Casting a mist and a darkness over this guy's eyes. Here's the thing that's interesting. 
He blinded this guy. Does that sound familiar? When Saul first became a Christian, how did he become a Christian? But that he was blinded. Friends, you can only give what you've got. You can only share what you've already known. You can only impart what has happened to you already. What he does is he imparts almost as it were his blindness onto this guy. And for that matter, mercifully, he's temporarily blind. And in that sense, I know it sounds harsh in that he, he, he makes him blind, he does this thing, but the very thing that once made him weak, he now imparts onto this guy. Hopefully, maybe this guy turns around and came to the faith. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. Good leaders, truly powerful leaders, they lead, they can lead with their weakness. Lead with their weakness. The thing that once made them weak is the very thing that they're able to lead with. Now, that does not mean I'm going to dump all of my junk on you. That's not what I mean. I'm not going to do that. But it does mean that I can be honest um, and that occasionally I, I do need to take correction and, <laughs> and change of direction and, and challenges. And, and um, I once heard a story about a principal school just like this. And the principal made a bad mistake. Everybody knew it. Not just the teachers and the faculty. All the kids in the elementary school knew it as well. And so he debated on the first day. You know, every, remember in the morning, you know, they, they, the, the principal would come out after seeing Pledge of Allegiance. The principal would come out and, on the PA system and would give the morning announcements or something like that. The first day he said, I can't say anything because it will make me look weak. It will make me look incompetent. So he didn't say anything, and all the faculty and all the kids were just kind of like, uh. But then the second day, it just got to him, and he said, I can't, I think I just need to admit I was wrong. So the second day, on the loudspeaker, not just for the whole faculty, but for all the children to hear, he admitted, I was wrong. And that was so good. That was, that was important. Um, when a leader says, I was wrong, I made a mistake, um, one of the kids came up to the principal and said, I wish my dad were like you. I wish my dad were like you. I wish every now and then dad could say he was wrong. Um, powerful leaders can lead with their weakness. Powerful leaders are the ones that can say, yeah, I was wrong. And actually that principal went on to be one of the most, one of the most, um, loved principles of the school. So, all of you, wherever you're at, lead with your weakness. Don't dump, however. Don't, don't dump, right? Don't, don't just like, you know, you know the, nothing's worse than somebody that says, I'm sorry all the time, or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Okay, that's too much, you know. Um, but lead with your weakness. Um, and I hope that I'm leading with my weakness as well. And hopefully my actions go before my words. So I'll just stop at that. But let's continue on. I mean, it's an interesting chapter. Um, verse 13. <laughs> Powerful leaders, right? Um, so Paul, it says, it starts at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea, so on and so forth. So now you, you see the dynamics change. I don't know if Paul was an alpha male. I don't know what he was like. According to historical records, he was short, 
bald, bow-legged, his eyebrows connected. <laughs> this is an actual historical record. Short, bald, bow-legged, his eyebrows connected. Actually, he was well-built, apparently. And, and he, he, um, he was filled with love. He was loving. <laughs> he was, they loved him. His words were like the words of an angel. I'll, I'll read the actual historical record for that next Sunday or in two Sundays after our previous service. It's, it's just a beautiful picture, really beautiful picture. And, um, but he takes prominence here. He leads the team, and it says, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This would be the beginning of a conflict, unfortunately, that the author would expound upon later. Um, more on that in a couple of weeks down the road. But then here in verse 16, it says, Paul stood up and motioning with his, with his hand, he stands up in a large crowd and he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And he launches into this sermon that I can't go into at length because there's so much there. This is definitely somebody that's been shaped by those 10 years underground. His thoughts, his views. He comes out so powerful that by the end of the sermon, we'll talk about the results. But I'm talking, I mean, I mean, the green square, it's just the numbers just keep rising and you're sweating. You're like, oh my gosh, he's super scion level 20. Like, what? A, he just keeps getting stronger and stronger, this guy. So, um, and he launches into the sermon that doesn't necessarily, it's not authoritarian. Like, this is the way it has to be, and we're going to do it. It launches into this, into, he, 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 he commands the audience, and it's more authoritative than authoritarian. That's the difference. Powerful leaders, that's the fill in the blank, are authoritative, not authoritarian. Somebody that is insecure in themselves and insecure in their stuff, they can't help but to be more authoritarian. I can almost tell. If somebody hasn't well prepared their material or somebody that's insecure in themselves, you know, the way they carry themselves, it's more authoritarian. It's, it's, like, it's like, you know, well, that's just the way it has to be. Somebody that's well-formed, that's thought it through carefully, that's well-prepared, that's sufficiently humbled, that's able to take different things and not take it personal, that's a person who's authoritative, Somebody was telling me about the four rules of, of, of church leadership. I forget two of them, but two of them were, number one, don't take it personal, and number two, don't assume. Somebody that doesn't take things personal and doesn't assume, that person is able to carry a genuine authority, not this kind of insecure authoritarianism, but more an authoritativeness, somebody that's comfortable in their shoes. And I can't launch into what Paul talks about. It's going to but I'm just going to say, you know, he introduces his ideas of justification here. Um, if you've ever read Paul, you hear the first mention of the word justification, verse 39, you know, literally translated, um, somebody is rendered innocent. And that, that, that teaching is for another time. And then he talks about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. And he, he does this whole historical survey. And at the end, he does this thing that is, I think, really, really effective. And what he does is he says, he quotes a verse. And what he says is, God said that this was going to happen. But he also predicted that you weren't going to accept it anyway. 
I am working a work in your days, a work which you would not believe even if somebody told you. And then he drops the mic and walks away, which is a kind of reverse psychology. It's a reverse psychology because when the people hear that, they say, we don't want to be left out. Tell us more. We don't want to miss out on this. It's very effective. Any good salesman knows that. You give him just enough, give him just enough, and then give him space. And it's almost like with his, the way he closes, he gives them just enough to tantalize them, just enough to get them saying, what should we do to be saved? And then he says, come back next Sunday and I'll tell you more. So they're, they're on the edge of their seat and you see some very powerful results. And that's the third and last heading. As Paul and Barnabas, this is verse 42 to 44, as the Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things be spoken to the next Sabbath. They're begging. You know what he's done? This is the fill in the blank. Keep him coming back for more. Keep him coming back for more. Bobby and myself were hanging out last night at my house, and uh, my son has been, my son has had a friend in kindergarten, first grade, this kid that we've gotten to know, and, and their parents are not Christians. They live down the street, and they came over, and we did a little jam session. This guy plays the bagpipes, like really, nothing you've heard. And, and I've been wanting to invite this guy out to church for a long time. And we've been hanging out with them, but even yesterday, I knew we have a preview service next Sunday. Hold off. Keep them coming back for more. Let them wonder, you know, how, 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 how why, are, why do I feel like I belong when I hang out with you? Why do I feel like when I hang out with you, it feels real? Why do I feel like when I hang out with you, you're really interested in me? Well, the answer is because I'm a Christian and I'd like to share Jesus with you. I thought you'd never ask. So I'm waiting, just waiting. Don't try to close the deal too quick. Don't rush in um, in your witness for Jesus. Build a lot of good times hanging out on Saturday night, jamming, talking over pizza. And the person will come back for more. Ray Bakke, again, I think I included that in the notes. He says it so well. It's in your note, blue on the bottom. To be a witness To be a witness means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God didn't exist. In other words, we'll be, we'll be quietly counterintuitive or countercultural as we live out our faith and follow Jesus. Who are the four or five people that you work with every day, and what is their human need? Maybe their kid is in trouble, or their marriage, their job, or their health. Caring responses begin at the point of such disclosures, right? Remember we talked about this a couple of months back in our core training, 
what was it, Lewis, that we called it? Like getting into the intimate circle, was it? The intimate circle, right? It's this inquisitiveness about another person. And the more we get to know them, not rushing in to close the deal. Do you want to accept Jesus now? <laughs> now come to my church now. But holding off on that, but coming into the intimate circle so that they are able to disclose their needs and you are able to reciprocate with a caring response. He continues by saying, evangelism is very simply scratching people where they itch in the name of Jesus. And I love the way he closes this out. A little church of 100 people will have potentially hundreds of relationships with people who don't know Jesus. Will they all end up at our preview service next Sunday? Maybe some of them. Maybe some of them. Maybe those that we've been caring for for a long time now. A second fill in the blank that I included there is that good relationships are not always instigated by us. And what that means to me is there are times where I feel like I freaked somebody out. <laughs> Do you, so I'm going to, we have a, a Bible study. Would you like to learn about Jesus? What? <laughs> oh my gosh. Honey, did I crash and burn there? Or no? She, no, you're okay. It wasn't that bad. And, oh. Two weeks later, I get a text. It's like, hey, yeah, do you want to hang out? We're doing some, you know, do you want to, want to do something? Maybe I didn't crash and burn. Maybe they will instigate the relationship as well if we're truly caring. Good relationships, they're not always instigated by us. If we indeed are scratching people where they itch in the name of Jesus, they will reinitiate what you thought went cold. Oh, man. I asked them if they wanted to come to church, and I, afterwards I felt like scratching myself everywhere, but actually... Two weeks later, they're still interested in your friendship. They're instigating. That's a good sign. It means we're doing something right. Close out, finish up. Verse 43 to 44. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. He definitely kept them coming back for more. He knew how to work them. <laughs> that sounds so artificial, but, you know, I mean, for some people, it's like instinct. You know how to relate. So they came back. They followed him, coming back for more. And in verse 44, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. I'm finding these days, sometimes I say things and they come true. So I'll just leave it at that. Um, not always, but sometimes. 